Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 1-11. Well, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're also going to be in John 8, if you want to mark that as well. We'll be in that toward tail end of the message this morning, but Philippians chapter 2. If you're visiting Christ Church this morning, we're glad you're with us. First of all, we're really grateful that you worship Jesus. You encourage us by doing that, and we hope then that we can encourage you as you worship with us. And if you're looking for a church home and a group of people to partner with in your walk of faith, uh, we would love to have a conversation with you about how to help you with that as you help us. So we're really glad you're here. We are in week six of a seven-week series. And let me tell you, catch up where we've been. We're looking at how does the Holy Spirit change us in such a way that we no longer have to try to be good, but that the Holy Spirit does a work in us that changes our hearts. It begins to produce what the Bible would call fruit of the Spirit. And we don't manufacture that. That is given to us. And we wanted to understand how do we receive the fruit of the Spirit. And so what we've been doing is looking at a moment in Jesus' life where he demonstrates it. And then what do the scriptures call us to so that we can open our lives up to this life alive? But if you weren't here last week, let me tell you what happened. And I just want to say thank you. Uh, As I began my message last week, I shared with you, we have a partner in India, Dr. Ajay Law, who's one of the most uh, amazing men. He and his wife are two amazing people. And we partner with their ministry at Central India Christian Mission in Demo, India. And if you were here, you heard us read a letter that Dr. Law sent us. It sent many of his supporters. And it was encouraging us to join him in prayer and financial support because of the, the epidemic that the pandemic is performing right now in India. It is outside of any other country in the world. Uh, it is devastating the work. And if you know anything about the caste system in India, you know that there are a group of people called the untouchables. And they can't, it doesn't matter what they do, they can't get out of that strata. And so they, they don't have health care, they don't have education, sometimes they don't have jobs that support their families. And Dr. Law is focusing on planning churches with those people so they understand the power of the gospel and how it defines them rather than a caste system. And so we asked everybody last week to join us to be praying for seven straight days that we would be praying for our brothers and sisters in India 
that the gospel would make a difference and people would know who Jesus is, even in this tragedy. And, you know, I asked you all if you would, and, and many said yes, and we're glad you did. We also asked for a financial sacrifice over and above your normal giving to ministries, to what, what you're currently supporting now, a sacrificial offering through the month of May. And I just want to say thank you, because last week alone, starting on Thursday night through last Sunday, um, you all gave $42,000 for us to send to India immediately. Now, I don't want to appear ungrateful, but there were some who have, were not able to do anything last week. We, all we want to encourage you is let's keep giving as the Lord provides. We want the entire month of May to be focused on getting money to them so they can buy the supplies to take care of those people who are uncared for and have no financial means. And you can do that several ways. The tips at the cafe, for those of you visiting, that tip jar is not for the baristas at all. It's actually for our missional impact partner of the month. Our initiative is India. And so anything you give to those tip jars is going to be sent directly to our missionaries over there. Also, you can give online and just pull down the little uh, menu. And if you see CICM, you can designate the money to that. And we promise every dime will get sent out this week to the forwarding agents that they can get the money in the hands of the doctors and the ministers over in India. So we want to encourage you for the month of May to continue to sacrifice and please extend those prayers daily uh, for the work in India. But I want to say thank you and encourage those of you who were not able to give yet to do what you can this month. And uh, we'll keep you updated as we hear back from Dr. Law about how things are going. All right. We have talked about love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, kindness, our premise is that the fruit of the Spirit grow out of the love of God. And as we receive that love, God begins to do a work in us. And that love defines our salvation and our hope and our faith, and it builds us. This week, we're going to talk about gentleness. Some of you may have grown up with a more biblical word for gentleness, meekness, a word that our world doesn't ascribe to, a world that says, no, meekness is weakness, and it's not strength, yet we know in the kingdom that Jesus demonstrated a gentleness and a meekness that actually was his strength and not his weakness. So how do we describe, how do we hold on to this concept of gentleness? It's actually found in humility. And I'll demonstrate that in just a few moments in the life of Jesus. But humility, see the gentleness of the spirit can only be experienced by receiving the humility of the gospel. When you and I have been humbled by the gospel, God will produce a gentleness in us for all people, a gentleness even in truth, a gentleness in judgment. So I want you to fathom that with me this morning as we talk about it. Our gentleness comes from being humbled in the gospel. So what is humility? What, what is it shown to be? In Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, we're told it's being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and purpose. Humility is knowing who you are, accepting the good and bad, accepting the success and failure. It's living in the reality of what your life has demonstrated. Humility comes from being known as a sinner. It also comes in being saved by grace. It, it defines who we are, our, our truth about our reality. Now, we can all act humble, right? You know the aw shucks moment? When you've done something, you've worked really, really hard on it, and it comes out pretty good, and people see the value of it, and they come up to you, and they're like, well, that was amazing. And you're like, oh, it wasn't that much. We can all put on an act of humility because we don't want to be bragging, right? My grandfather taught me a long time ago, those who should brag don't have to because it's known. 
So we have this reality of that aw shucks moment where we feign humility. But the truth is, where we really learn to be humble is when we choke on it. Are you with me? I know everyone over the age of seven has had humility thrust down their throat and you gagged. It was hard. You thought you were all that and you found out you weren't half of that. And everybody else was more than that. And all of a sudden, your reality confronted you. And, and it's like coaching Little League Baseball. It, it's amazing to see a little guy or girl get up to the plate for the very first time and whiff on the first pitch. And they walk to the dugout thinking, I'm the worst person ever. No, you're human. Well, why did you think you would be great at it the first time you tried it? But we think failure is sin. Yet reality, we know humility because it's been forced on us. But here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel humbles us and doesn't devastate us. The gospel humbles us without destroying us. The gospel humbles us and invites us in on a journey. So the humility that we receive from the gospel is the kind that settles our heart rather than devastates it. We've had the other form. The world's knocked us down and laughed at us. I was told of a story of a young man who entered in a seaside village and as he was entering the village to stay the night, he saw this mountain terrain behind him and very boldly, he said to everybody, I'm climbing that mountain tomorrow. And they said, well, it's higher than you think. And he said, I'm climbing it. He said, the weather's not very nice when you get up there. I'm climbing it. He had no apparel. He had no preparation. He just had self-confidence. So he got up in the morning and the, the villagers watched him go up that mountain and he left at the sunrise and about sunset, he came down the mountain. He hadn't made it halfway. He didn't have gear. He didn't have clothing. He was bloodied and bruised and his spirit was broken. And one of the ladies looked at him and she said, son, if you'd have gone up the way you came down, you would have come down the way you went up. Humility. Most of us have to learn it the hard way. The gospel teaches us humility in the most loving way. What does humility threaten? Individualism and self-confidence. Paul would call it selfish ambition. We all know what selfish ambition is, right? Uh, church, uh, let's remind ourselves when a question is asked, feel free to answer, all right? We know what self-confidence is, right? Or we know what selfish ambition is. Like, am I the only person in the room who when a pizza is bought and brought home and opened, am I, the, am I the only person in the room who looks for the biggest slice first? And when your children reach for it, you're like, oh, no, no. Heather can have it. You never. The big piece is for me, right? And that's so Jesus-like. Everybody weeps. No, it's the opposite. I know what it is to have selfish ambition. But Paul uses another word here, vain conceit. It's actually found in one Greek word. See if this doesn't sound like our culture. It's to be hungry for honor, to be hungry for respect and importance, to be an influencer. That's the ultimate goal of our society, is to make every statement I say change somebody or to leave an impact. And we're taught to, in American culture, make a legacy, leave a legacy. Yet we know by being humbled by the truth of the gospel that it's not our legacy that needs to be left. It's Jesus' legacy. I was sharing someone in the foyer. I've done a lot of funerals. I've done a lot of eulogies and you never talk about the whiteness of a person's teeth or what motorcycle they drove or what kind of vehicle they had or how many square feet their house had or how many businesses they started. You never mention that in a eulogy. You mention character. You mention purpose. You mention values. You mention what they lived for. The world says leave a legacy and I'm here to tell you the legacy's already been left. It was left by Jesus and we should get in on that. And then when the world doesn't appraise us or value us or thank us enough, we're okay. Because we realize where it's all to be found. It's not hungry for honor. It's hunger for his glory. 
We're fading, we're aging, and we're unable to hold on to their, our place. I think about that. I used to think this when my dad would start to tell a story and he'd be in the middle of it. He's like, oh, what was that guy's name? Marilyn? And my mom would give him the answer and my dad would be so frustrated. I was thinking, man, it must stink to get old. I'm there. I'm telling stories now and I'm looking at Heather going, give me the name. And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. This aging's not fun. So please laugh at this. I laughed at it. My dad knew it was funny. My best friend Mike was standing right there and he chuckled. <clears throat> and my, my mother scolded all three of us. It was the night I was ordained in the ministry. It was uh, May 24th, 1987 in my home congregation in South Bend, Indiana. The elders of that church who watched me from a child all the way to the age of 21 grow up, laid their hands on me and prayed over me that I might preach the gospel fully and never back off. And they laid their hands on me in that moment and then they all walked down the center aisle to go to the foyer and they left me up front and I said some words, or I tried to say some words through the emotions to those that loved me and cared for me. I wanted to say thank you. And then I walked down the aisle and then everybody came out to greet me in the foyer. And as I went into the foyer, all of the elders were waiting there for me and they hugged and embraced me. I honestly was born and raised in that church. They saw all 21 years of my life. I got kisses and hugs from all of them. And my dad was the last and he put his hands on my shoulder, gave me his big bear hug and he pulled me in. And my dad said these words to me in front of God and everybody. He said, Mark, remember this, the Sunday after you're gone, they're gonna have church. People, that's funny. You're all my mom. You're like, that's horrible. No, I laughed. My dad laughed. My buddy Mike laughed. And my mom's like, damn. But the truth was, my dad taught me a principle. It's not about me. It's not who does the preaching. It's who gets preached about. Church, we have built celebrity cultures where the person who stands under here under the rotisserie lights gets credit. No, it's really about preaching the truth. And my dad told me a valuable truth. The Sunday after y'all let me go, I'm going to be sitting next to you worshiping Jesus because it's not about who's on the stage. It's what we are talking about. Humility is brought to us. And when it's brought to you by the gospel, it's a blessing. What does humility do? It allows you to love, serve, be guided, to stand corrected. Look at verse two. Being one in spirit and of one mind, unity. It's what Jesus prayed for on the night he was betrayed. Verses three and four, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value each other above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the other. In fact, that word humility used in verse three is actually another Greek word, and it means a wild animal that's been tamed. It's like a horse that allows you to ride it. That horse is powerful and stronger than any human who will ever get on its back. But because it's been tamed and submissive, it's been humbled. And when we think about this, when the Greeks used the word humbled or humility, it was always derogatorily used. It was never something that they wanted. It, you were humbled against your will rather than submitting to it <clears throat> because they valued strength. And they thought that based on respect and fear, a, a person had then had power and authority to humble others. In fact, humility was for servants only. Yet in the New Testament, it's used 270 times. And every time it's used, it's positive. Jesus said, blessed are the meek or the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. He also said, take my yoke upon you. Jesus said, strap up with me and I will carry the weight. I will carry the work. Just learn to walk this walk with me. For I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. 
Our identity is not founded in what we do or don't do. It's not founded in the legacy we leave. It's actually found in the life we live with Jesus, finding our completeness in him. Then the humbling of the gospel allows you and I to be content that when we don't reach our dreams and we don't reach all of our potential, we know that our lives are not evaluated on our impact. It's evaluated on his grace. When that humility becomes a part of who we are, then we can treat everybody with the same respect that God shows us and them, whether they show us that same respect or not. When we're humbled within the gospel, we don't always have to be right. We can be corrected and we can stand corrected because truth is what we receive and it demonstrates our soul. And humility is not dismissing your needs. I've tried to say this repeatedly through this series. If you read the Psalms, you're going to realize that many people went to God wishing things were different. Many people went to God with complaints about the way they were treated unfairly. Many people are free to talk to God about the way they wish things were. Yet I'm here to tell you this morning that God can handle every bit of that. And yet you and I can then humble ourselves before the mighty will of God, knowing that if God doesn't give us every opportunity we want to have, or God doesn't meet every need we think we need met, that we can in gratitude thank him that his will will be done and his will will be right. Verse four, one more time. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. You see, it is okay to go to the father asking for daily bread. It's not a lack of faith. It's actually a step of faith. So how is kindness sourced? How are you you and I going to open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit doing a work in us? What do we contribute to this gentleness that comes through being humbled by the gospel? Somebody once said, humility is the shyest of virtues. And it makes me think of Peter Pan trying to capture his shadow, always trying to fight his shadow in the midst of this. So humility is the shyest of virtues. Yet you and I both know that the moment you, you claim humility, you just lost it. It just slips through your fingers like water. You can't contain it. So you can't work on your humility, but you can work on your pride. This is what the gospel does. The gospel tells us that we're sinners who need to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 5 through 11. But before we do, I want to tell you that there's great theology in this section. It's one of the most beautiful passages of Paul's writing. And many scholars believe that beginning there in verse 6, that this was actually a song that the early church may have sung. And we'll talk about that too. But let's read verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is telling us that to fix our hearts and open us ourselves up to the humbling that comes within the gospel, not choking on it, but actually loving us into a status and a reality that is truly ours, we need to look to Jesus. In fact, Uh, One preacher said there's three movements in this song. Let me show you them. The first movement is the incarnation. It's found in verses five, six, and seven. Though he was God, he became human. 
He assumed human nature and our king became a servant. He emptied himself of his glory, but not his deity. He's telling us the sacrifice he made to humble himself to become a man and walk on earth with us. And I'm taken immediately to Isaiah chapter 53, where it says he had no beauty that, he should, that we should desire him. Now, I know this is a bit goofy, but walk with me in this. If Jesus had come and been a specimen, like a good-looking dude, you know, cut, ripped, attractive, Brad Pitt, let's go there. If Jesus had come at Brad Pitt, we know human nature is we are attracted to attractive people. In fact, the more attractive you are, I'm told, the more successful you might become in our culture. Look at People magazine. Look at the people we idolize on movies and everything else. They spend their entire lives working out so they look fit and then they act like it's just natural. We're drawn to him. Saul was made king. Why? Because he was a tall, handsome man. Yet Jesus could have had the shortcuts of all shortcuts. If Jesus had come down, a, and I hope I don't get struck by lightning, if Jesus would have come down as a stud, the world would have gone, we need to follow him, he's attractive, look at him, and we'd have followed him for the wrong reason. It actually says Jesus came down and he took no shortcut. He was just an average dude, maybe homely. And you're all like, huh, maybe. And the world looked at him and they're like, meh. And then he talked and he taught and he acted. He humbled himself and he took no shortcuts so he could walk the earth with us and show us what real love looked like. Powerful. The second movement is in verse eight and that's the atonement. Though he was human, absent the life of comfort, he went to the cross to die for us. The third movement is verses nine through 11. That's the ascension. He came down, but he went even lower and then God raised him up which we know that the guided path of discipleship is to go low rather than climbing high. It's to humble ourselves. He emptied himself of his glory. He emptied himself of his beauty. He was eventually beaten, tortured, and killed. He gave it all away. The creator king, who with his mere words spoke all the universe into existence, made himself small enough to be beaten to death. Paul said, look at that. And ask yourself, what kind of legacy do you really want to leave? Humble yourself. And then it says, therefore, God exalted him. It says, Jesus trusted gently in the Father's will. He humbled himself. He became small so we would become large. This is what the gospel is. And to the degree that you and I believe that the example of Jesus is an example in which we find our completeness, that will be the degree to which hope grips your soul and humbles you. And when it does, then God can exalt us. Then God will reward us. Maybe not in this lifetime, maybe so. But he will keep his every promise. That's how we develop humility. I want to take you to John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2, if you'll turn in your Bibles to that. You'll know this passage, but I have to, I have to teach through this a little bit differently than I might just preach through it. When you look at John chapter 8, you're going to know that this section is bracketed. The first 11 verses have brackets around them. So let me give you some inside baseball about biblical interpretation here. This passage of scripture is not found in the most common manuscripts of John's book. So when you take all the early records of John's book, all I'm going to tell you is it was not included in those originals. Some of the later editions, it was added. So we're trying to figure out when was it added. But I also want to tell you that some fragments of it are found in some of the early transcripts of Luke's gospel. So here's what I want you to take away from all this. You're like, what? Let me just put it this way. 
This is what we know about it. It was an eyewitness account. Hold on to that for just a few moments. Somebody was telling this story and they recorded this story. The reason why they believe it appeared in Luke's gospels in pieces was because Luke, unlike John, Luke was not a disciple of Jesus, so he went around and interviewed a bunch of people about the Jesus stories. And that's why the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are firsthand accounts that Luke recorded and reported to those who paid him to do the research. Are you with me, church? Just say amen. Okay, so it's a firsthand account. Now let's walk through it. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Verse seven. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. And the woman was standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Verses three and four give us an account that's important for us to know. I'm going to give you a lot more background than some of you want, but just track with me. I think you'll see what I see. In verses three and four, it says she was taken in adultery. Now, the Old Testament law of evidence To be able to try someone for this sin, some very specific things had to happen. There had to be two witnesses. Now, those witnesses could not see them holding hands, could not see them kissing, could not see them walking in a bedroom, and could not see them just lying on a bed. The actual evidence needed for those two witnesses was two individuals actually had to see them in a sex act. Pretty upfront, pretty clear. You couldn't say, I saw them walking out of a bedroom. You actually had to evidence what was taking place. The Pharisees had a woman caught in adultery. That's undeniable. They had the trap set for Jesus. They dragged her out. I'm very, very suspicious that she was naked. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Because if she was caught in the act of adultery, they pulled her out of the bedroom and they took her to Jesus because they said to him, what are we supposed to do with this? If Jesus says stone her, then all of his talk about grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness is meaningless. If Jesus says let her go, he disrespects God's law. They had him cornered. And Jesus, when they brought the woman, kneels down in the dirt. It's significant. I can't prove this, but it sure sounds like Jesus. The reason he's kneeling in the dirt, she's naked. He's not going to shame her. He's not going to stare at her like everybody else was. He realizes they're using her to get to him. His compassion, his gentleness with her is brilliant. And it says he begins to write in the dirt. I want to know that, don't you? What was he writing? There's a lot of speculation. One of the coolest things I ever heard was someone speculated that he was writing each man's name in their sin. That would be awesome. But I can't say he did that. He's writing in the dirt. And then he simply says something along the lines of, uh, let the innocent start the punishment. Here's what the Old Testament law teaches in Deuteronomy. The only two people who could throw stones at her were the two people that actually witnessed her sin. The angry crowd had no place in it. Also, the law said that those who have committed adultery could not execute her. 
So why did the two eyewitnesses drop their stones? Huh, guilty as charged. And then by the way, can I ask a third question? Where's the man? By definition, you can't commit adultery alone. They dragged her and left him. And they even asked Jesus, aren't we supposed to stone women like this? And Jesus just keeps writing in the dirt. And he says, hey, let the innocent start. And then he goes back to writing. And it says, beginning with the oldest, and maybe we might interpret that the wisest, they dropped their execution stones. And they turned and walked away. And then it says something very significant here. Because Jesus was not denying the law. Jesus was denying their right to be executioners. He simply said, if you're able, if you're worthy of being the executioners, throw the stones. That's what the law says. And then everybody's left. That's a key point. Jesus looks up and he says, no one to condemn you? She said, no one, sir. And then Jesus, and I want you to think with me through this. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. The one who could, didn't. And the ones who couldn't, tried. But Jesus doesn't just simply say, it's not a big deal. He says, no, I don't condemn you. But go and leave your life of sin. Jesus didn't make excuses for her. He said, you did this. Stop. Live a life of purpose. And he refused to condemn her. Why is this so important? Because verse 9 says, everybody left but Jesus and the woman. How do we know this story? It wasn't because John saw it. It wasn't because Luke saw it. It had to have been because she told it. She was the only one there who could have told you what Jesus said to her. She's the only one there in that moment who understood the great mercy he showed her. I have to ask you a question. Do you know Jesus like she knows Jesus? Because when you're humbled by the gospel, you do. You realize that we were naked and caught and not excuses thrown, all of our excuses thrown away. There was nothing innocent about us. And we stood before Jesus. And when the crowd didn't know what Jesus knew, Jesus knew and he looked at us and he said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. After I preached this first hour, I sat in the hallway and Michael Tefazio came out and I always said, anything I can fix? And he goes, you know, there's this one thing you could say at the end. You could really say that the gentleness of Jesus, even when he condemns us, invites us to more of him. And I'm like, oh, that's stupid. He's always so smart. He's right. See, Jesus looks at us and he's gentle. And his gentleness doesn't humiliate us. We don't choke on his judgment. His judgment is an invitation to go and sin no more because that naked woman understood that he would become the naked man on a cross. And he traded her place with himself. And the judgment and condemnation she deserved and you deserve and I deserve, he was stripped and beaten and crucified for you and I, that we might go and sin no more with life. What a gentle shepherd. What a loving, true king. Where does gentleness come from? Being humbled by the truth of the gospel. For those of you who don't know Jesus like she knew Jesus, I would love to have a conversation with you because I'm not better than you, but I understand what she experienced. Her testimony can be mine and I think it can be yours too. Come see us at the prayer table. 
Let's begin this journey together. We know our gentle Savior. His gentleness calls us to him rather than condemns us to hell. And then that becomes a part of our story. Humbled by the gospel, you and I will treat others and care for others the way we were cared for by him. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.